Hey, Circle Dyke listeners. As always, thanks for joining me. Today, we are talking to director Jill Denyenica about the first feature film she directed, the 2013 coming-of-age film Life Inside Out. So, as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive, and no plot turn is sacred. You have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So, before we get started, how to watch Jill Danyanica's Life Inside Out. As of the recording of this show, it's only available on Amazon Prime and Amazon Instant Video, and if you've got the old school Netflix DVD plan, you can rent that DVD from Netflix. Only a few ways to see it, but this is still totally doable. You've got this. Jill Danyanica's Life Inside Out. Get a hold of it. Give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Voila. Anyway, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. Jill Danyanica interview, take one. Mark. And action. This is The Circle Take, conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film. And over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is writer-director Jill Danyanica. Jill is an L.A.-based visual artist, filmmaker, and mother of two girls. She received her MFA in visual arts from Claremont Graduate University and a B.A. in cultural and intellectual history from UCLA. As a working Hollywood professional, Jill has edited and co-produced several independent films and has been an editor for television shows like J.J. Abrams' Undercovers and the ABC Family slash Netflix show Pretty Little Liars. She was also an editor on the hit show Switched at Birth for ABC Family and was eventually offered the chance to direct the penultimate episode of the series. Outside the world of Hollywood, Jill's work as a visual artist has received numerous grants and awards and her artwork has been viewed in numerous art and mainstream publications. Her debut as a feature film director is the coming-of-age story Life Inside Out, which tells the story of a teenager named Shane, a boy who feels like the black sheep of his family. But in Dil Janjanica's film, Shane's coming-of-age struggles are told through the eyes of his mother, played by Maggie Baird. Jill Danyanica, welcome to the Circle Take. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's let's dive right in and just start talking about the film, just in sort of really broad strokes right now. When was the film made? We shot it in August of 2012. Okay. And then, and then it, it was came of, out in 2014. What was the inspiration for the story originally? Well, actually, let me backtrack a little bit because you didn't write the story. I didn't write the so story. So the question every aspiring filmmaker wants to know is how did you get the gig? How do you know the writers and how did you become involved as the director? Okay, so this is a little bit of a long one. But when I was a brand new mom, I went to a La Leche League meeting with my brand new baby and met someone who seemed like a veteran. She had a six-month-old. And she was so cool, and she seemed to have it all together. And at the end of the meeting, I ran up to her car, and I threw my card at her, and I said, I want to be your friend. (laughs) And that woman was actress, uh, writer Maggie Baird. And we did become friends. We brought our kids to the same hippy-dippy preschool, and we wound up homeschooling our children together. So we've been friends for years since our kids were born. And all that time, I would say to Maggie, we should make a movie. We should make a movie. All we need is a script. 
And I think at the time I had wanted to be the editor of that movie, but the years went on and my aspirations grew. And then it grew into me wanting to be the director of that movie. And Maggie finally wrote the script 14 years later. Let me ask you a little bit about that process, actually, because that's kind of interesting. As someone who's been working in, in the film business for a long time in another discipline, was there was there a gradual process or was it something where you woke up one day and you said, you know what, I want to direct? I think I'm always on the quest to do new creative things. My artwork never stays the same. Every piece I make incorporates a whole brand new set of skills that I learn in order to make that piece. And so I'm very excited by always striving forward and learning new things. And probably along the way, as I was editing, some friends were probably saying you should be directing. Like maybe it was in the back of my head somewhere. I never let it really quite get conscious. But at a certain point, after I had directed for several years and worked with several first-time directors myself as an editor, I thought, I could do this. I'd really like to do this. I was scared out of my mind, but I wanted that challenge. Was it, because I know this happens to me working as an editor sometimes, where you see a first-time filmmaker make mistakes. After a certain number of times doing the process, you're like, you start seeing the same mistakes happen over and over again. You want to like reach out and go back in time and tap them on the shoulder and go, don't do that one. Editing is such a great film school. Um, As you said, I didn't go to film school. I went to art school. And I learned editing on the job. And then I learned film on the job of editing. Because you do see those mistakes. And you see these fantastic things that people do. These creative solutions that people come up with as well. You see everything. And you're absorbing everything. All the small little details. Was there a moment when you flipped that little switch in your mind that you thought you might want to start directing? You started cataloging those little tricks and tips in your mind when you'd work with a director? You know, because there's a difference when you're working in a discipline in the film business where you're like, oh, that guy's really good at his job. Versus when you're thinking about doing his job and you're like, oh, I'm going to use that. That's good. I think I'm going to use that. That's really good. Didn't happen until I was in prep for the movie. I think I really was just absorbing good and bad impulses and you know problem solving and not problem solving from all the filmmakers that I was working with and all the films I was seeing and I was just sort of absorbing that like a sponge but then when I started to prep the movie I started the cinematographer and I went out and saw as many um, I mean we had a really short compacted prep schedule we kick-started it in June and July and we were shooting it by the end of August So we had maybe six weeks to prep the movie. But in that time, we were going out and seeing as many films as we could and talking to each other about the stuff we liked and, you know, the stuff, the problems we saw, what we wanted. So anyway, in that time, then I really started to put that critical thinking hat on. The other thing I did, which was the smartest move on my part that I could have made is since I edit television, I work with a different director every three or four weeks. So I had met many, many fine directors through the years of editing television, and I contacted many of them, and I said, I'm about to shoot this film, and I've never directed a thing in my life. Give me a piece of advice or a warning. Give me anything you got. And I got some really great feedback from those directors. Some of it was super practical, and some of it was hilarious, and I wrote it all down, and I had it in my notebook, and I could just refer to it. That's great. It was awesome. It was awesome. I had, you know, I had wonderful stuff like trust your gut, even if everybody is telling you something else. If your gut is saying something to you, go with your gut. And I had one director hand me her phone number, her cell phone number, and said, when you, not if, when you break down on the set, run into the bathroom and call me and break down with me. Don't break down in front of the crew. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, you know, just cast right, like everything, like the, the sorts of pieces of nuggets that I got from these veteran television directors sure. was awesome. That's great. Yeah. Let's jump back to the top of the process and talk a little bit about casting. 
obviously <clears throat> Maggie was sort of precast. This is a role she wrote for herself. Yeah. We can totally assume. Maggie we can say that she was precast, but there was there were discussions around the table where we were considering or being asked to consider casting somebody else that had a bigger name. Oh, okay. For the part. Okay. And that was heartbreaking for Maggie and I. I imagine. And yeah. yeah. And now, so, how seriously were those conversations taken? Well, was it like, was it, was it like producing money coming to the table? And it saying was, we could get you more money if you bring us a bigger name? Yes, that was basically it. We think we can get more money if we have a bigger name, so should we get a bigger name? So that was a very real consideration, and I could see it on Maggie's face, and it was on my face as well, that just, no. But you had that piece of paper that said, trust your gut. Yeah, there you go. Trust yeah. your gut. And my gut, and obviously her gut was saying this part is hers. She wrote this part. This part came from her heart and her experience. And she's the best one for the role. And what what was that experience? Did she she and a friend were were actually doing this? Like Yeah, so um so Maggie Baird is not only a fine actress and writer, but she's a musician. She's a songwriter. I mean, I think that's pretty clear in the film. She's right. clearly playing. She's clearly singing. This yeah. is not somebody standing in with close-ups on hands and stuff. This right. is the real deal. Yeah, 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 no, which was made it great to shoot. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, at a certain point, Maggie, always creative as well, uh, decided to start a collective of moms who were musicians because she thought if she tried to go out to open mic nights on her own, she'd always find an excuse not to. But if there was a collective that was going to these open mic nights and playing... Accountability. Accountability, yeah. exactly. Smart girl. And she's roughly how old when this is happening now? She, she's she's a she's a grown... She's not like a, a kid in her 20s going out no, to open mics. grown woman. Yeah, grown yeah. woman in her late 30s maybe. Yeah, or with kids. With the kids, whole thing. exactly. Okay. So, so she's starting to go out to these open mic nights with these other mom singer-songwriters who are going with her. Accountability, like you said. And they're playing gigs at these open mic nights. And um, they each play a couple songs, and sometimes if it's if it's that kind of uh, venue, the kids are there and the husbands are there. It was a lot of fun, and she had all sorts of experiences at those open mic nights that she said this should be a movie. It seemed to me in viewing the film that the most challenging role was the role of Shane, where you need a kid who can sing and play and then not suck as an actor. So you need you need a kid who can pull off all three believably in front of the camera. What was that process like? Now, simultaneously with all of those wacky experiences that happen at open mic nights with all the characters that sort of show up for these things, her son, Phineas, he was a preteen at this point. He sort of out of the blue picked up a guitar and started playing. Now, that's a little bit of a stretch. He has two musician parents, so... (laughs) It's yeah, in his it's sort of bound to happen. Yeah, right? and they're you know they're teaching him stuff, and right. I think even my husband taught him to play guitar for a while too. So he had a bunch of mentors that were t- helping him, but a lot of it was just him watching YouTube videos and figuring it out for himself. Yeah, and he very quickly got very good, and so she incorporated that into the movie as well. Yeah, um, and when she wrote the movie with Lori Nasso, who was one of the songwriting friends that went to those open mics with her, when they wrote the movie together, it was that experience that was sort of informing the narrative the and experience when they of sat down to write that script had either of them written a script before or was this both their freshman attempt you know they're both com- longtime uh, comedians Lori wrote for Saturday Night Live and Maggie was a groundling is a groundling and so she taught and performed at the groundlings for okay. years and years so they both have some sort of formal structure yes. training as far as like yes. how to tell a story and stuff. yes so they've they never like written a feature before blue. right okay. yeah they've never written a feature film before but they sketch comedy 
improv. So you go with your gut, and you, and you and you leave Maggie in play, and then and then the the, the chorus is set out to find this kid. Well, that was really easy because the kid had a bedroom across the hall from hers. Oh, so this is her kid. In, this in is the her film. kid. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, was there any question as to who was going to play that role, or was it always like, oh no, this is the kid. We're going to use him. No, there was never any question about. There was never any question about so, Phineas. So then, I guess, I guess the next question is, um, was Phineas like, yeah, I'll do it, or was, did you have to be like, hey, you're going to be in my movie? Uh, you'd have to ask Maggie that. I think he was like, kind of like, okay, mom, whatever. Like he's pretty game for it. On my end, the fear was, well, first of all, number one, we part of the reason why we had such a compacted pre-production schedule and we couldn't not make the movie when we did is that Phineas was growing out of the role. He had just turned 15. And, you know, teenage boys at 15 are completely changing. His voice was changing. He was getting taller. He was getting too old to play this kid. And so if we waited one more summer, we would have had to cast somebody else. We had to shoot it that summer (laughs) before he grew out of it. Right, and goes back to school and you lose him. Oh, no, he's homeschooled. Oh, he's homeschooled. Yeah, we homeschooled our kids. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we actually graduated him for the role. We graduated him out so of high school. So you wouldn't have to have a tutor on set? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he was perfectly ready. The kid was ready to be out of school. Did you make him audition? Phineas? Yeah. No. He had the part. Phineas had the part. But... Because there are some moments in the script that demand some, like, you know, pretty overt emotional yes. acting that, you know, if he didn't have the chops for, were going to be pretty flat. Well, and that was my one fear, was that I knew he was... a pretty great songwriter for a 14 year old I mean for any age he's a really amazing songwriter and musician I think I'd only seen him he'd only been in one short film and he was sort of a a featured extra or a a small bit player in Bad Teacher and he was hilarious um, but he didn't have an expanded role in Bad Teacher and so I had no I, I knew his mother and father were fine actors but I had no idea if Phineas could act no idea so just a leap of faith leap of faith and then casting the rest of the the because there, there's a pretty big central cast and it, just in the house really there's there's you know the whole rest of the family did you have any difficulty in finding the rest of the team to come together around those two maggie and i we were mainly the people that cast i don't know how maggie knew david cowgill who played mike her husband but maggie was super excited about having david come in and play mike and then i had a casting session with roscoe and Orson, who play the boys, the boys, the twins, yeah. they came here to my studio and read for the parts. They're fr- they were friends. I think, well, how did it go? I think I met Orson and I said, do you happen to have a friend that could play a twin, like your twin? And he said, oh, funny, in a student film I just did, my friend Roscoe played my twin brother or he played the other side of me or something like they had to be. And I said, bring him in. So the two of them came in for a casting session. They didn't know which part to play. And so I had them read for both. And it was very clear to all three of us which one should be which. So that's how we cast them. And they were great. Well, we cast Lori as Lydia. Lori Nasso as Lydia, who is uh, Laura's sister in the movie. And then the other parts, we had casting sessions. You know, we all talked it over and figured out who we were going to get. And most... I think for some parts we had to get non-SAG actors because we were so, so, so low budget. I mean, we, we made this movie from a Kickstarter and a few and few investments. From- well, let's get into the next section because that's what I like to kind of just rip through real quickly for the audience is just go over the nuts and bolts of this thing. Because it's, it's really interesting for people to sort of 
uh, forensically watch this as a filmmaker to study it. So let's just break it down really quickly, the, the production schedule, and then we can get into sort of the, the more contextual stuff. Sure. Um, how many days do you guys shoot for total? I think that originally I had wanted 18 or 19 days. That's what I had wanted. Now, you're talking to somebody who had never made a film before. So I'm making this up kind of out of thin air with Guido, my cinematographer, helping me out. Right. These are numbers you've heard. Yeah, that sounds okay. That sounds kind of doable. You know, it's a movie about music and they're going to open mic nights at this club. I think four days in the club would be fine. That would be good. And 18 days total. And our producer came back and said, for the budget, you can have 16 days and three days in the club. And we were like, okay, let's do it. And we so we broke down the strips. And Guido and I broke it down in a way that we thought we could do. And I don't know any better. So I say yes. And then... On day one and a half at the club, L.A.'s Finest came and shut us down because we didn't have proper permits. Well, that's usually one of my questions. Um, did you have permits for the whole shoot? No, we did not. No we permits did at after all. that. No, well, after that, we had so, to. But your, your plan originally was to shoot without permits. Yep. And then you got busted. Yep. What is getting busted shooting without permits like in the city of Los Angeles? It sucks. Just go get the permit. <laughs> it sucks. First of all, wherever you are without that permit, at least for me... I mean, I've done guerrilla artwork, Jason. I've gone out and I've done huge pieces out on the streets of L.A., guerrilla artwork that was non-sanctioned by the city or by anybody. So I feel like I'm kind of fearless. But um, in this case, when you've got a crew of people behind you, even, you know, it's a scrappy little crew of 20 or 40, but it's a crew. And you've got, you know, what for us was big money and time constraints to do this thing and to have that fear that specter of being shut down kind of in the back of your head the whole time it it takes a part of your brain power away it stresses you out and takes a part of your brain power away that you can't use to focus on making the film that's a great point i mean that might be something a first-time filmmaker might make that choice to save the money because you know let's be honest in the city of los angeles a film permit is not cheap right do you know how much you guys paid for your permit i think I feel like we paid 3000 Yeah, and, But now you can only shoot in the city of Los Angeles. You can't shoot in Burbank, in West Hollywood, in Glendale, in anywhere that's incorporated outside of the city of yeah, LA. Yeah, we had to pull another permit for Monrovia. Right. But we always intended to do that because we were going to be out on the streets. We right. thought we didn't need permits, I think, because we were inside. We weren't even out on the street. But we had our truck parked out yeah. on the street, and the neighbors caught it. Yeah. What it a was, lot of people don't know is you need a film permit to shoot in your own home. Right. We shot and we shot fully probably almost half of the movie, at least a third of the movie in Maggie's home in Highland Park. And by that time you had a permit. No, no, we no, we didn't have a permit by that time. I don't think the days we shot at her house, we never had a permit. OK, so you made it all the way through the house and it was just when you so you did the house first. Well, here's what happened. No, not all of it. So here's the deal. So they shut us down at. 1.30 on our second day of shooting at the club and they said you need a permit to come back and we had to break the whole set and we had taken our one day off to build that set right light it right everything so we spent the rest of the day breaking it down <laughs> Guido it out. my cinematographer Guido said give me your credit card and I go why am I giving you my credit card and he goes because you're buying Starbucks for the crew and he handed the credit card to the PA and said go get everybody's order and go to Starbucks and get every like he was so smart like yeah, we gotta yeah, keep yeah. morale up here yeah and um, and we broke down the set for the rest of the day while I was trying not to throw up. And then our producer was busy trying to figure out what we were going to do the next day instead of shoot day three at the club, which was scheduled. So at that point, you're rebuilding the entire shooting schedule 
based yeah. on not knowing when this permit's even going to come through. Exactly. Once you apply for it. Exactly. Exactly. And so she's busy pulling the permit and trying to reschedule the next day. And what we came up with was to do what should have been like, I don't know, like day 12 or something, which was this big emotional day with three huge emotional scenes for our lead actors, for David, Maggie, and Phineas. And she said, we're going to do that tomorrow at the house. That was a house day. And so they had to then spend the rest of the day prepping for that, that they were thinking it was the next week. Right. So um, they had to prep for their scenes. I had to get wrap my brain around getting ready for that day at the house instead of the club and get over the fact that I had just lost the club for the day, next day. And then in the midst of all of that, we found out that one of our musicians, featured musicians, Yogi Lonich, um, I called him and told him when we found out the, the reshoot day was going to be at the club. And he said, I'm going to be in Europe that day. I'm on a, I'm on a tour. Right. I'm going to be in Europe. I'm not here. And Tessa, our producer, said, you got to find another musician. And I said, I can't. I want that particular song by Yogi. I need that for the end of the movie. I can't not do this without Yogi. we got to figure this out. And Guido and I got together, and I was like, you, gotta, we, you can shoot him in my studio. I'll make it work in editorial. Being an editor, I know you can put anything together and make it work. Shoot him in my studio. Let's do it. And Guido's like, your studio, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Guido, I need Yogi. And, um, and we came up with the idea to shoot him in Maggie's backyard. And so that next day, we shot those three big emotional scenes. And then that night, we um, strung up curtains so that we made it look like the back, the back of the stage. And we shot Yogi in only mediums and close-ups. Because if we had gone back any further, you would have seen the playhouse sure. and the swing set and all right. the accoutrements of a backyard. Right. And Guido brought the lights home from the club and we set them up. And uh, Yogi played his song to playback. And Guido shot some of the most amazing shots of the entire film. They were beautiful. He got behind him at a certain point, and he went down from the sky, down to the back of Yogi's head. And I yelled. I, I was behind Guido watching him on his little monitor. And I burst into tears and said, holy shit. <laughs> and thank God it was all playback. Right. Because I would have ruined the take. Necessity, the mother of invention once so again. So beautiful. The most beautiful shots. Right. Shots you probably would not have gotten. We wouldn't club. have maybe thought about it. Right. Because Guido would have had the luxury of doing right. the wide shots. and the. Right. But because we were constrained yeah. by only having the curtain behind us. Right. We right. had to. And the only thing that gives that away in the movie is that um, when Go, our MC, Go Nakamura, gets on stage and says, thank you, Yogi, Yogi's nowhere to be seen because he wasn't there that day. Right. Um, and then, OK, so so you already tried to shoot without permits. Yeah. So I'm assuming you guys are using the ultra low budget modified contract with SAG. Yes. Correct. Yeah. So that contract enables you to use SAG actors and non SAG yes. actors. Um, you're, you know, I assume you're not using any other unions, IATSE, DGA. Uh, Tessa had asked me if I wanted to go through DGA so that I could become, you know, DGA. And it was going to be like, I thought, I think I was going to add $20,000 to our $80,000 movie. About that. Yeah. And I was like, nah, that's okay. Um, so that's usually one of the questions. So your budget is about 80 grand. Uh, that was the shooting budget was like 85, I think. Then all in everything, deliverables and editorial and everything. It wound up being 125. Okay. Um, well under the limit. <laughs> yeah. And, um, um, and, and when you're shooting, are you doing five or six day weeks? We were doing 
six day weeks. Okay. So one one day turnaround and then back at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it was really helpful to be able to use SAG and non-SAG actors. Especially for a film like yours, because I imagine some of the musicians you're using are great musicians, but not necessarily actors. Exactly. Part of that, though, I don't know if everybody knows, if you use non-SAG actors, you still have to pay SAG bennies for them. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, a lot of people think they're going to save money because they don't have to pay them. Well, you, you do. You save the $100 yeah. or whatever it is. Well, 150 an hour, I yeah, think. But whatever you still have to pay the fringe. Right. But you still yeah. have to pay the $34, $40 fringe, yeah. Right. You said about 20 to 40 people in your crew? That sounds like a pretty big crew for an $80,000 film. Is this a lot of volunteers? I think we paid pretty much everybody. Okay. Uh, pretty much everybody. Uh, so so you're not you're not rolling amount. 40 deep on that is that 40 deep you're you're talking about like crew, cast, extras, yeah. everybody. Yeah. 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 Uh, but in, and then your your crew on a typical day, how many people were there? We had well Guido was shooting himself. He had a focus puller. And um, and then we had uh, so camera department total of two people, two people camera department, and then we had a sound guy that was mixing while holding the boom mic. Sure, crazy good one man band, one man guy. band. He was mm-hmm. crazy good, which is scary because first of all, I think you, I think good sound is more important than good picture on a movie, any movie. If you doubt this, go watch Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. <sighs> because yeah. it was shot on 16 millimeter it was cut tape to tape on three quarter umatic <laughs> and looks like garbage yeah but the studio that bought it sunk a million dollars yes. on the soundtrack and it sounds amazing exactly i think an audience will an audience will accept any kind of crappy picture as the aesthetic of the movie but you have crappy sound and that just pulls people out of it immediately yeah. so that was super scary to give one guy the power on this movie that's all about sound and music sure and he did an awesome job so we had the sound guy then we had you know gaffers lighting we had pas running around we had the producers gaffers and lighting it's what two guys three guys i think we had i think we had four guys Maybe two, one person may- on hair and makeup one person on wardrobe uh we had two one or two on wardrobe People were doing their own makeup. We had somebody that would help out. She was also one of the actresses, and she was helping out when she wasn't acting, doing makeup. But Bare we asked bones. everybody to do her own their yeah. own makeup. And um, really, this is a really scrappy crew. Oh yeah, for so sure. You're rolling twenty deep with talent now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Your, your crew is probably eight or ten people tops. Yeah, I feel like there were more running around than there. It was a little while back, but yeah, yeah. I think I mean with PAs and everybody, yeah, yeah. yeah. And how long were your typical days? Were you guys trying, trying to keep it under twelve? Or oh yeah, we had going, to you, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, our producer wouldn't let us go over 12. That's great. And yeah. did, did it feel like a challenge to keep it that way, or were you feeling like you got your days? Sometimes it felt like a challenge, yeah. There was one time where I, um, the movie gods gave me a gift, and so I wanted to shoot a scene that wasn't scripted. There was, it was a heat wave. In the you know it was terrible heat wave like over 100 degrees and we were shooting in a house that you know we couldn't have the air conditioner on when we were shooting, so it was really yeah. hot. We- so all of a sudden, someone yells, cover the, cover the equipment, cover the equipment, it's raining. I thought they were kidding. And I run outside... And there was a downpour. And so I said, we got to shoot on the porch. We got to shoot this rain. So we grabbed Maggie and David and we just made up a scene on the fly. It was so fast that I wouldn't let the sound guy mic them. And so it was all MOS. And later on, Maggie, we had her playing guitar on the porch while it was raining. And later on, she had to match herself. First of all, remember what song she was playing. Right. And without, then, without a guide track. Without a guide just, track. And just uh, match herself. But thank God she does a lot of looping. She's yeah, really good. It looks so, really good. You yeah. never know. But anyway... Um, that whole time that we were shooting that that sort of magical scene that the movie gods gave me, my first AD was whispering in my ear, Jill, we have actually we have actual scripted scenes to shoot. 
and right. I was like, You're yeah, yeah, get behind doing, get this. out, get out. Yeah. Or, or I remember he would say, we got to move on, we've got other stuff, and I would say, this is really important, and he would say, Jill, you say everything is really important, right. <laughs> but we made it. So you never got yourself into a place where you're like in turnaround and had to like shift the schedule or anything. No, but I did get myself in places where I was screwing myself as an editor, where I didn't give myself, I didn't have the time to give myself the coverage that an editor would need. So this is this is part of the gift and the curse of coming from editorial as a director. There'll be moments where you're getting toward the end of a scene and you've done your turnaround and you realize, I don't have enough coverage. And most directors will figure that out in the editing room. But as an editor, you're you're on set. Is there a moment on set where you're thinking of like already making a B plan for the editing room, or are you trying to figure out a way to like where can I pick up the shot someplace else in the schedule? Because you know this is a film that takes place eighty percent in one house. Mm-hmm. So the, were you thinking like I didn't get that? Maybe tomorrow I can like grab a shot and fix that. I'm trying to remember. I don't think so because we were always set up in a different room. I think I tried to do it all when it was scheduled. I mean, we might have picked up one thing or another. In this house, uh, Maggie's house, which she let a film crew into her own house. Yes. Kudos to her for being brave. That is not a large house. No. That is a, a, a fairly small house. There's a piano in the room already, which takes up a heap of room. Well, can I... Oh, so I, there's there's not a lot of space for gear to begin with. No. There was one day where I, I gave Guido my shot list. Every morning I'd give him my shot list. And he looked at it one morning and he said, where's the camera going to go? <laughs> and I said, over here in the corner here. And he goes, we'd have to knock out the wall of the house to get the camera there. And I was like, oops, let's redo the yeah, shot. Yeah, like well, but we'll dig a hole in the floor. Exactly. I want the camera down there. <clears throat> exactly. The piano, the, the baby grand piano that's in the house. At Not the end, in the house, normally. No, it's in the house all the time. So I had to shoot the first half of the movie where the piano isn't supposed to be there. Oh, Right. Because they move that piano in halfway through the movie. That's right. So it's not supposed to be there. So I had to avoid looking in that direction for the first half of the movie. Because the idea of moving the piano out of the house for the first part was not an option, I assume. No, no way. (laughs) We couldn't do it. So we had to just pretend that there was no piano in the house, which meant Jill, the director, had to shoot it in a way that you never saw that room. Right. So that you never realized that... It's not there. Right? And then there was another shot that we did in... um, This is a movie about music and and the... and the house was filled with musical instruments that we had to avoid because they are awakening to music and bringing right. music into their lives. Right. There's one shot in Phineas's room. It's a small little bedroom. And there was a piano in that room as well that we couldn't get out the door. <laughs> and so I had to shoot it to avoid that piano. And right. it's a tiny little, you know, I don't know, eight by, what is the room? Like 10 by 15 yeah, it's feet. Room, it's a yeah. tiny room. And I had, like, Guido had to just keep that frame. If he had moved over just three inches, you would have seen the edge of the piano. Right. I think I just tried to finish the scene as we were doing it and what that meant is me sometimes only getting one take and thank god they were such fine actors including Phineas that was the biggest surprise and lovely relief that I had the first day that I shot him I just was flooded with love for that boy you, and did, realizing was it like I was his, okay. his first take you just knew we're gonna be okay yeah exactly and those were my exact words in my head we're gonna be okay he's friggin amazing I think the biggest note I gave him was in pre-production when we were doing recording the playback because except for the house, all the music was pre-recorded because I thought that would save me time. Thank God it really sure. did. So um, when they were in the house, a lot of that music was live. But when they were at the club, it was all pre-record. And the only the biggest note I gave Phineas was you can't sing it that well. You, Phineas, are a really good singer, but Shane has just started. Uh, so you right. have to be a little more tentative right. about it. 
that was it. Right. Less, <laughs> less polish, less polish. Yeah, less polish. <laughs> that was about it. So let's move into post-production. And obviously, having such a strong background in editing, was, was there a moment where you thought, I want to cut this film myself? Or was, was it always your intention to sort of have someone work with you? I had hired my friend and colleague to cut the editor's cut and had told him that I would probably want to take it back at director's cut because I'm super comfortable in the editor's chair. And I, that's, you know, that's my way of processing a film. That's my comfort zone. And I knew I wanted to spend some intimate time with my film. And he had offered really generously. And we also didn't have enough money to pay him through all of the different notes sessions. And he was very generous about saying, I'll stay on with this movie. And I'd be happy to do your notes. I don't care how particular they are. And I said, you know, I just think it's going to be a little easier for me. And I want to. I really wanted to cut it myself. So after editor's cut, I took it over from Philip. But he still stayed involved in the process. I would send him my cuts and he would give me notes on my cuts. So they sort of would go back and forth. He would give me notes on the director's cut. And he still cut scenes for, you know, we, he was still cutting individual scenes mm-hmm. and we would put them together. But I had the bulk of it after editor's cut. So sort of a, like almost like a cross collaborative effort where you you do a cut and he'd say, well, how about something like this? And then yeah. Kind of shuffle it around a little bit and show you something else. Uh, he would give me notes and I would do them and I would show them. You know, it was like okay. that. Yeah, okay. I kept cutting. I kept my fingers on the keyboard the yeah, whole time. Yeah. The bulk of the club scenes are, are Phillips. And um, if you watch the movie, the fight scene between Maggie and uh, or Laura and... Mike in the kitchen that was I don't think I touched a frame it was hmm. amazing and then moving through the direct once you took it over at the director's cut point how, how much how much further evolved did the film get from the from the point where you took over the director's cut until the, the final version of the film I think the editor's cut the editor's cut might have been close to two hours long when I brought it in at director's cut it was 110 minutes in director's cut I restructured I restructured some of the scenes. I moved them around. Okay. Um, because there was a there was a point in the movie where there were a whole bunch of dramatic scenes, one after the other, and I was feeling like it was relentless. And I was like zoning you need, out. You needed that kind of hills and valleys, you need a little break. Exactly. And so I took them and I moved them around to give those, like you said, to give those hills and valleys. I, I restructured the parts of the movie. And then I cut certain scenes, a couple scenes in half. Um there's one scene where Laura and Shane are at the piano playing a song together. It's when she really realizes how, what a great musician he is. It was four minutes long, close to four minutes long. And so I cut it down to three. And when we screened it to pre-screened it to some people, everybody said, oh, that scene was so beautiful. We want it to be longer. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. perfect now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. And you'll never see it longer right. because I did. And yeah. it's not, yeah. That's when you know it's the right length is exactly. when they want more. When they want more. Yeah. So you didn't really, when once you got into editorial, there wasn't any point where you were, like you said, uh, going out and doing reshoots or anything. You were pretty much um, working with the footage you guys had shot. We didn't have the money for reshoots. So there were many, many days where I was sitting at my computer editing that movie and banging my head on the desk saying, who shot this piece of... <laughs> I was so angry at the director. So, I was so angry so, at the director for not giving me what I needed. And then right. I was like, oh, yeah, that was me. Yeah. So what do you, because it's interesting to me. What do you think it is? You look at a script and you go, yep, that script works. And then you go shoot the script and you're like, yep, this is working. And then you get in the editing room and you go, nope, I got to tear it apart and restructure this thing. It's not working. Do you think there's ever a chance that a filmmaker could be sophisticated enough to recognize that earlier in the process or do you think it's just the natural course of the filmmaking process? Wouldn't it be lovely if you could figure it all out 
from the beginning. And I always say in script writing, that's the cheapest time to make changes. That is the cheapest time to figure crap out because it's just a pencil and paper or it's just the computer. That's the time to work out all your shit. But that's not how it works. I mean, that's what makes it exciting. I think no matter how much experience you have, first of all, you have this incredible like idea and it lives when it's living in the idea world it's beautiful it's perfect then you got to get it on paper so that's the first step where it sort of starts to get constrained now someone reading it on paper the director if they're not the writer reading it on paper sees all these beautiful visions in their head about what that movie can be and once again it's not constrained it's all in the idea realm and then you shoot it And you get amazing points of magic on the set that you never expected that are so much better than what's on the page. It's so much more beautiful than you ever imagined in your own head because of these incredible performers, because of this incredible crew, the stuff they're giving you. And you also get problems because whatever reason, you know, for us, we only had 12 hour days and 15 and a half days to shoot this thing. So I didn't have enough time to shoot all the coverage maybe that I would have wanted. Or you just have problems, whatever it is. Someone doesn't show up or someone's not feeling well or a piece of equipment is malfunctioning. Someone's not doing their job and you have to deal with those problems on the set. And so all of that interferes with that perfect vision that you had in your head, along with all the magic that you get that's so much more amazing than you ever imagined, like that rainstorm. Right. And trying to balance that all into the final version of the film, which is never what it started out as. Yeah. And so then the editor's sitting there and the the beauty of editorial, usually it wasn't, wasn't the case for me because I had been on set, but the beauty of editorial is that all the editor is looking at is what's within that frame. They have no idea the pain you went through to get that shot. They have no idea the fight you were having with yourself or with someone else on the crew or cast to get what you needed. They have no idea. They're just looking at what's in that frame and they're putting one frame next to the next to tell a story. And hopefully that objectivity gets you the best story that you can. Now, I was lucky that I was also the director. As an editor, the one fortunate part about being also the director is I knew where all the bodies were buried because the club scenes were so light because I wound up only having two and a half days instead of the original four that I wanted. I had to pad that out. And so I could steal stuff from day from the first club day and stick it into day four at the, you know, I could, I could move things around. I could get audience reactions from one time and put them into another time or And in the case of this movie, because we had such a limited shooting schedule, especially in that club, it was very painful. Uh, The editor would have been really mad at me. So once the film is completed, you go through sound, you go through color, and then you go through, for a film like this, the festival world. Mm -hmm. What was that like? That was great. That was really great. So we, oh, actually, so we went through sound and color. We locked it at 110 minutes. And then we went through sound and color. And I think we had another... I think we started to submit at that point. And we actually got into the Heartland Film Festival, was the first film festival that accepted us. And they asked us to be a premiere there in Indianapolis, Indiana. And their mission statement just jived perfectly with what we felt like the sort of the feeling of our film. And so we were super excited to premiere there. And we actually wound up winning Best Premiere. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, Anyway, so we were accepted to Heartland. And somewhere in between starting to apply to film festivals and getting into Heartland before we actually went. We had another test screening or we showed it to somebody. Maybe we showed it to an investor that had a little more money to give us for post or deliverables. They said, you've got a perfect indie here after the first 20 minutes. But the first 20 minutes are really slow. And so they suggested we cut 10 minutes out of the first 20, which for me was an impossible task. But I said, I can cut five out of the first 10 and it'll feel like I cut 10 out of the first 20 
<laughs> and so I did. And then I cut some more along the way. So I wound up cutting 10 more minutes out of the movie. And when you're doing that, is that as you're finishing post or was that's post No, we had already finished. We'd already gone through our sound so mix. Are, are, are you then, you're cutting the color master in the stems? And yes, like, because I said, oh my God, this is going to cost us to go back in and reconform. And yeah. it's going to cost us a lot of money to do it. Do we really need to do this? And the producer was like, yeah, we really need to do this. So I spent a couple of weeks. My only caveat is that I can't add anything in. Right. I can only take it out. So I will take, because it's going to cost yeah, us yeah. more. Subtractions only. Subtractions only. Yeah. And I think I, I stuck with that except for one, I think I put in one more reaction shot from somebody in the club. Maybe like that fresh from dailies or recycled? Fresh from, from dailies. I think I got it fresh from dailies, so that cost us so a little. you had to bring it through color again. Mm-hmm. The final film running time, I think, was 103 minutes. Nice. I feel like some of the beginning of the movie flies by now, but you get to the point where right. you want to be. Yeah. 14 minutes in, which and is audiences great. audiences don't mind. They don't They'll care. They'll catch up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now now I realize, like, you know, of course, looking in the rearview mirror. You see the other three minutes there now? Well, in a lot of ways, yeah. I see a lot of <laughs> scenes where I could cut more later on in the movie. And I think that trusting your audience is super important. Like, yeah. you don't really have to give them everything. Yeah. They're going to, you're right, they're smart. They're going to catch up. They're going to get it. And if they don't get it, they'll make up the little missing pieces in their head. If it's If the movie is carrying them along emotionally, they will make it work. Do you feel like getting Heartland and winning something at Heartland propelled you into the festival world? Did it help you in that world at all? I don't know if it did or not. I think we applied for, it was crazy. I took it on myself. I think I was the most excited to go to film festivals because as a visual artist, you work so hard in the studio on your art. And the only time you really get to share your art is at those art openings, at the ex- exhibitions. And so for and in me... In the film world, a festival, is, that's as close as it gets. Yeah, that's yeah. my exhibition. Yeah. I want to share my film with audiences. Yeah. I want us to get that feeling of like getting the reaction from audiences. To me, that was super important after all the hard work we had put into it. I think other people were interested in that, but I was really spearheading that. So I spent my own money on film festivals to the tune of $10,000 maybe, more. Yeah, and I, let's let's just stop and ruminate on that thought for a moment. Uh-huh. You can spend upwards and over ten thousand dollars submitting your film to festivals. Yes, that it's, is hugely hugely important to not gloss over, gloss over, and think is unimportant. Because, for example, I know someone who tried to make a movie for fifteen thousand dollars completely. You could spend the first 10 of that just submitting the film. Yes. Which means you have $5,000 left, and craft service costs more than $5,000. Yes. Because guess what? People got to eat. You can get a free cast and a free crew, but you got to feed people. Exactly. You got to feed them well. You got to feed them better if, you, if you're not paying them. If you're paying them, you can actually afford to spend less on yes. crafty. But if you're not paying them, now you really got to feed them well. It's like, the, it's like the credit card with the Starbucks, you know? Yeah. If things are getting shitty, it better be worth it in my belly. Yeah, yeah. You know? And actually, to back up on that, and then we'll keep talking about the festivals, someone told me that, or I read somewhere, that the difference between uh, zero and 50 is more than the difference between 50 and your regular day rate in terms of money, in terms of psychologically for the crew feeling valued. Sure. So giving them zero or giving them $50 is a huger difference psychologically than $50 and your normal $300 or $700. Because you're saying, I value you enough to pay you. Now, we paid a little more than 50 for most of the people on our crew. But if you can kick a little money to your crew, it's really important. If you can't, totally understandable if you're bare bones. Anyway, back to the film festival circuit. Yeah, I spent $10,000 on film festival submissions. We submitted to... 
just again, because I, I don't want to overdwell on this, but uh-huh. it is really important. $10,000 is not a lot of money. No. And what I mean by that is $10,000 is a lot of money. <laughs> But it's not a lot of money to spend on festival submissions yeah. because they're, you know, 70 bucks here, 150 bucks exactly. there. And it's a lottery. And as we all know, your chances go up the more lottery tickets you buy. So yeah. you have to buy a lot of lottery tickets. Yeah. I think we wound up showing at 21 film festivals and that averaged out to be being accepted about one out of every five. I think part of the $10,000 was also posters and postcards and... And we also gave out little uh, guitar pick necklaces that said Life Inside Out to all our audience members at the festivals. Like, we really wanted to make it a fun party. Right. And so, but honestly, that the swag probably cost... Um, a fraction a of that A fraction. Number. Yeah. A fraction of what that it cost. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, exactly. The submission fees are what kill you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even the, you know, the, the modern structure without a box where you have the digital submission, you know, back before without a box, you know, for anyone who's old enough to remember, you had to burn DVDs. And put them in a case and print artwork for them and get labels made and put them in a bubbly envelope in paper postage and that's how you submit it to festivals. Actually, half of the festivals I submitted to, I submitted that way. They still weren't accepting digital screeners at the time. Even in this is 2013, 2013, 2014. 2014. Yeah, 2014. Wow. Wow. They still were asking for DVDs. Yeah, so there you go. So that's part of the struggle and you know, hopefully more and more of them will come online and get this digital submission. I think all of them are at this point. I hope so. Yeah, I don't, I haven't seen any lately that have, Yeah. 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 But, you know, that only that only eliminates a part of the cost. Right. You know, the, the DVD and the thing and all that stuff is all told a, a third of the submission if it's $100 to get into a festival. Exactly. You know, that's it doesn't cost you $30 to duplicate the DVD. No, thing, it costs, you know, you know, maybe, let's say, it's like five. Eight, or, they're like yeah. eight bucks all in, including postage. Yeah, exactly. You know? But that's on top of what you're already paying for fees. So it does get crazy. It does get crazy. Um, so, you know, you submitted to about 100. And we submitted to about 100. Okay. I think 100 festivals. And you get into about 20. 21 and we got invited to a few of those like they at a certain point people started calling and asking us to be in festivals so 21 festivals and we wound up winning 15 awards at the 21 festivals and wonderful awards like many many audience awards i think five best feature narrative awards and uh phineas won best actor that's awesome yeah that was great you weren't producing this film so you didn't have to go through the struggle of like trying to find a buyer and negotiating those kind of things but did you get a call one day where they said, hey, we actually you know, found an outlet for this thing? We actually, because it was such a scrappy film, there were five of us that were sort of co-owners of the film, including our producer, Maggie, Lori, me, and Guido, our cinematographer. So the five of us were sort of a scrappy team in it together. So you guys all sort of collectively took ownership of the film. Exactly. Okay. And I think, you know, Tessa did the heavy lifting trying to find buyers and distributors, but it was all of us giving our two cents and trying to figure out how to do this. And we were all kind of brand new to that. Every step of the way was a learning curve for us. We wound up hiring a, what is it? A, is it a producer's rep or a? Yeah. I think we hired, yeah. and he shopped it. I around. mean, sometimes they'll call them a sales rep, but yeah. normally, the ter- like like a John Sloss or a Cassie use kind of guy, they're, they're producers reps. Yeah, but really, and and they do produce films as well. But what they'll do is, you know, take films to market, be it Sundance or Cannes or whatever. But you know, they'll say, "I'm I believe in this film. I'm going to champion this film." Right. And they'll get out, and they know everybody. They go to the right parties, and they talk about your film. They get people interested. They arrange screenings, and they say you should buy this film. And they try and get as much money as they can for you. So I think we wound up hiring a producer's rep who, and then we got a couple of offers, and we went with Monarch Home Entertainment for domestic. For domestic, we never sold it internationally. Really? Yeah. And then, and there were also discussions between the five of us of potentially self-distributing. 
But at the time, I mean, the landscape changes so fast. Yeah. At the time, we're talking 2014, 2015 now. You would have still been in DVDs then, right? Still been in DVDs, a little bit of streaming. It was just starting to streaming yeah. was just starting to happen. It was a really transitional moment. It was transitional and we were we had no resources to help us understand how that was going to happen if we self-distributed. And Monarch was uh super excited about bringing the film to the Christian market, even though it's not a Christian film by mm-hmm. any means. And actually, side note, we wound up having to go back in again to sound and changing a couple um, unsavory words so that it could be Christian market Mm -hmm, to the Christian market. And so we went with them out of um, exhaustion and also excitement (laughs) about the markets that they could bring it to. Sure. So the next uh, section is um, really what it comes down to is just talking about mistakes in a way that we can learn something from. That's the whole point of this thing. So in talking about mistakes, was there ever a mistake that cost you a shot or or cost you coverage? And, And this is not necessarily that you made, but that you as a filmmaking team made. Oh, I can tell you one that I made. There was a shot we needed. Shane and Laura are in the car and a girl he likes walks past frame like through the car so we're behind them this is like when they're at school they're at school they're at school Guido's behind them and I'm next to Guido and in the back shooting from the back seat Uh uh-huh over their shoulders and Lucy is supposed to walk down the sidewalk and cross his field of vision and I said we got it and Guido said I don't think we got what you think we got because I don't think I was looking at his monitor at the time I'm looking through the window right and I'm saying we got it it's great and he said I don't think we got what you think you got no, no, we got it. We got it. Let's move on because we were trying to. And, and just to back up a quick second, were you stealing these shots or did you have a permit yet? We didn't have a permit. We were stealing. It was a holiday weekend and we thought we had permission from the school. We did have permission from the school, but we didn't realize that that wasn't part of the school property. That was residence. We had some surly monks <laughs> mad at us. So I was trying to get out of there. And I said, we got it. We got it. And Guido said, I don't think we got what you want. And I said, no, we got it. And then I got into dailies and I was like, he was right. <laughs> Listen to your DP. So, yeah, sure, of course. There were times that I'm trying to think of other times. Was there anything else where you didn't realize something had happened that went wrong or a mistake was made until you were deep into the post-production process? You go, oh, I know what happened. No. Okay. I mean, I think part of and part of that is my. I don't know. You know, maybe it was luck. Maybe it was my editor's brain. I could always see how it was going to get cut. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I miss something, it's because I wasn't at the monitor. Sure. Right. And I thought I had something because I wasn't looking at the right frame. Is there any I don't know when the last time is you watched the film. Is there is there something that when you do watch it that just still kills you every time you see it? Yeah, there's a couple. There's the scene where they're all having a picnic in the backyard. Like a they're having a barbecue in the backyard mm-hmm. on the that kills me because I wish I had covered it better. I I don't think I covered that scene well. And then the other thing that always I just cringe when I see it, there's a shot from behind the stage over Shane's shoulder behind the stage in the club. And you look out at the club and it looks so empty. And it kills me. It kills me every time I cringe, like, get out of it. And I needed that shot. Right. And was it just something where you just, the extras didn't show up? Or like it was a, like like friends and family extras and everyone bailed? Or did, you just didn't well, have enough people? Well, here's the thing. Or? It doesn't matter. Because what you do is, when you're shooting that shot, you get everybody to crowd in. Right. Right? If they're not in the frame, if they're off to the side in a booth to the side, you say, move in for right. this shot, which I didn't do. Oh. We were shooting so fast because, once again, two and a half days for right. all those club scenes that I that was one thing I didn't do was shove them together to make that shot look full. Because, you know, the club, the club MC says to Laura, 
it's a packed house tonight. And then that <laughs> shot comes up and I'm like, oh. For him. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine everybody that yeah, it's a yeah. packed house. So to wrap this whole thing up, and this is why I call it the circle take, I'd like to ask you about like takeaways and lessons learned and, and the kind of stuff that you can bring forward into your next process, your t- sort of takeaways from the whole experience, especially now that it's been five years and you've had a chance to really soak it in and, and have that long view on it. What was the biggest thing that surprised you about the process? Uh, every day that I showed up on set, I was 100% better as a director than the day before. So the learning curve was really steep. Wow. Um, because I had never actually really been on a set before, except for small moments of time to, you know, go give like a Like visiting to, as an editor? Visiting as an editor, exactly. I, haven't, I, hadn't, I had not ever sat behind, sat on set or worked on set. Wow. And so um, the stress of that, the exhaustion of that, and, you know, just because I was absorbing the exponential so much. learning curve, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there something uh, that you made a note of during those days where you, you said to yourself, I'm not doing that again? <laughs> There's probably a couple that I'm not going to share. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to think. Is there something that wound up being more difficult than you thought it would be when you were going into it? 10 or 12 hours go by so fast. The day goes by so quickly. So prior to the process and pre-production and everything, building your days, you thought 12 hours, that seems like enough. Yeah. I knew intellectually that lighting and camera setups take some time. But when you're sitting on set and you know the clock is ticking. sitting there waiting And you're for sitting them. there waiting for yeah. them. Yeah. That is when the day I, does not go. can't they do this fast? That is when the day does not go by quickly. That is going by like molasses. Yeah. You're like, oh my God, I need to get my shot. It's just one shot. Now, when you see how beautiful the movie is, that my scrappy crew, what they came up with, it's like more power to you. You can have, and they did it so quickly, honestly. Right. I understand that now. Yeah. They did it so quickly with so little. Yeah, and just a In few terms guys. of resources, that's what I mean. Yeah. In terms of resources, a few guys and a few pieces of equipment. Right. Was there anything that might have been a little easier than you thought it was going to be? Anything that you thought going in, boy, that's going to be difficult. And then it wound up not being as hard as you thought. Well, because we cast so well, there were very little notes that I had to give to those actors. Mm. One line here or there, one, I mean, one word here or there, one suggestion here or there. They were fantastic. And, you know, the, I mean, my notes wound up being like, Lori, I need you to I need you to look up at that. I need you to look up for a second when I was on her because I'm I'm going to need a shot of you looking up at, at editor brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was editor brain, and I just let her in on the process because I was just on the camera was just on her. Can you just please look from look down to up? Thank right, you. Just give me an up and down. Yeah, that's I need all, that for the trailer. I need that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but the actors were amazing, and I think that's also a good piece of advice for filmmakers is cast correctly, and so much of your job is done for you. Mm. Having done it once now. Is there something that you know, and I don't mean the practical stuff like get a permit. I mean, probably more in the creative process or in the in the execution process of it. Is there something that you know you would do differently next time? I would really advocate to get the days I need. I mean, I'm fast, but I feel like parts of the movie suffered because I didn't have all the time. Now, it's a beautiful movie. And what we did with the time we had, we filled it. You know, we with the time and resources we had, we used it all to the best advantage. 
but it would have been nice to have a little bit of luxury as in more than 15 and a half days. Sure. I'd like to ask this last um, because this sort of brings together the whole reason we do this podcast. And that's advice for the aspiring first time filmmaker. And this can be someone who's maybe got a couple of short films. Maybe they've done some YouTube stuff. Maybe they went to film school. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're working in the film business. Uh, maybe they're not. But if if you had to give some advice to someone who's setting out and thinking about making their first film, what would you tell them? Just do it. That's Just it? Well, I no, think... You had a notebook full of advice. I did have a notebook full of advice. But the thing is, we have the technology in our hands. I mean, at the time, Maggie and I had said if we couldn't raise the funds, we would shoot it with our little camcorders and... We didn't even have iPhones at the time, I think, but we would just shoot it with what we had. We were determined. And I think it's really important to just shoot, just do it, because you learn so much in the process. You learn so much in the process. And and shoot something within your means. Like, bonus points, if you can make your low-budget problems become the solution to your story. Does that make sense? Sure. For instance, paranormal activity. Paranormal activity, they didn't have any money and they made that be part of the script. Like That's what made it so scary is it looks so real. If That is the bonus points I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So use what you have, right. but bonus points if you can actually incorporate that into your story and make that be part of the script. Not shooting without a permit again. There you go. Yeah. That, I think, was my number one takeaway. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, that was just too... I mean, some people can. More power to you. For me, the stress level that I was feeling when we were out on the... We only had a few scenes out on the streets, and every time I was feeling so much stress. Taking you out of the process. Taking me out yeah. of my ability to focus on what was important, which was my actors and my shots. You know, there was a big chunk of my brain worried that the cops were going to come by and shut us down. And that is just, not, it was too much of my brain power. That's a great lesson to learn. I think also just prep as much as you can. Really do your research and prep as much as you can before you get on the set. The more prep you do, the more prepared you are before you step foot on set, the better able you're going to be to get through your days gracefully and make room for magic that happens and um, get through problems easier Um, treat your crew well I told everybody that someone oh this is a piece of advice that one director gave me he said problems are going to come up so tell your crew when a problem comes up come and tell me I don't want to hear who did it I don't want to hear blame I want to hear what the problem is and any solution you have to fix that problem and we don't have any time for blaming anybody so let's just solve it and that was a great piece of advice keep a positive attitude on your set respect your crew they're awesome they're working hard for you give them the respect and love they deserve for that and um but prep 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 one of the fun things i did in prep was guido and i sat down and we read each scene and we each wrote down if we could only tell this scene with one still photograph what would it be And so if we didn't have time to actually go through a whole shot list and write down all the coverage before we shot, we would remember that picture that we had in our head and we just would go, how do we get there? How do we get to that picture in this scene? And that was a super helpful thing for us to do. Great advice. Uh, Joe, Danyanica, thank you so much for being part of The Circle Take. That's our show for today. The Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. You can't hear that music right now, but it'll be there. <laughs> Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's always more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where we post photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. And of course, all of this, the podcast links, clips, notes, and more, is all on our website at thecircletake.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Schmidt, and you can circle that one. 